Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. I'm starting the podcast on a high note today because Dan, Nathan, and I are together in New York City. Danny Moses, how are you? Good. I miss it. I'm jealous. Where are you, Danny Moses? I'm in his studio as well. And in Bocaraton. Of course you are, because that's where you spend the majority of your time, as I should. But you know what, Danny? I still got to hump and work hard. I haven't reached the status goes. that you've gotten to. I'm working my ass off down here, and I'll be back up there soon. Now he's a big movie star. In, in one week, he was on CNBC's Fast Money. Who was? Danny Moses. And then he was also on the John Stewart show on Apple Plus. Stop. Yeah. Stop. One week. All in one week. Guy, what else have you been on other than CNBC? Don't bury the lead here. There's a, there's a term when you hide something that you're supposed to be talking about. They call that burying the lead. Danny Moses, we're going to talk about this at length, I'm sure, but you were on that John Stewart show? Yes, it came out today. Well, look, there's clearly a lot going on. And in case you were curious, you are listening to the On The Tape podcast. Now, my sense, Dan, Nathan, if I'm not mistaken, we're 14 months or so into this thing. Is that about right? Yeah, I think our first episode was January 15th, 2021. That's incredible. And I think we've breached in the definition of breached. It means we've gotten to the other side of... One million downloads. Is that correct? Yeah, man. Wow. That's unbelievable. And it's thanks to you folks at home that make it happen. This week, we got a lot going on. Jerome Powell came out and seemingly assuaged the concerns of some of the stock market investors because he said, you know what? We're going 25 basis points. The market seemed to like that for whatever reason. ISM gave us a snapshot. What I think is Danny Moses' stagflation, which, by the way, he started talking about last summer. And we have a job reports that will come out as this podcast drops. So we'll see what that means. Also, because energy is a huge story, Halima Croft, who is the axe in the space, will be joining us later on this podcast. Dan Nathan, how are you, by the way? I'm doing well, Guy. This is your first time back on the set of Fast Money this afternoon. That's why we're in the same room, what, since the summer, since July of 2021? Right, and you can see the look on my face. I can't even begin to tell you how just enthusiastic and happy I am to be. Not that anybody particularly cares first world problems, but getting into the city pre-COVID sucked. Getting in post-COVID is even worse. That's why Danny went south. Parts unknown here. All right, let's get into it. Obviously, in January, a lot of that volatility had to do with how aggressive the Fed might be, how aggressive the hiking might be, how quickly they might end the taper. And then quickly in February, the page turned and we really got into geopolitical mess with rising commodities, specifically oil. But I know that you guys want to talk about some of the other ones like wheat. I think, Danny, you just mentioned it's been limited up every day for a long time. Where are we right now? Because it really feels like this invasion of Ukraine is in this weird suspended animation, doesn't it? In some way, shape or form, we've been talking about this 40-mile-long convoy of Russian military stuff outside of Kiev for a week now. And what's going on here? First and foremost, most important, everybody stay safe in Ukraine. And that's a horrible situation that, regardless of the stock market, takes precedence over everything else. But that being said, there are ramifications going on, both financially, politically, that will be here for years to come from this. And this doesn't look like it's abating anytime soon. Putin, I think we give him too much credit for knowing the difference between right and wrong, when to stop, and what the repercussions are going to be. They're throwing a lot at him right now, at his country, at his companies, at the oligarchs, everybody. It's not really deterring. sounds like this is going to go on for a while. You're now seeing already the impact of what sanctions do here and there, what that may mean to oil, what it does to wheat. And I think when a world crisis occurs, people start, look at the map. Where is it? Wow, that's a big country. What do they make? What do they send out? What do they consume? And all of a sudden, you start to go, and you guys had me on Fast Money the other day, only because Guy was out and they needed someone to fill him. And that was very nice of you, Dan, to get me on there. And you guys wanted to talk about the banks. And the banks are all created differently. Obviously, they all trade off rates, but some have the exposure directly. Some European banks have direct exposure to this stuff, and some don't. Some are more global, like City and JP Morgan. Some are more local, like Bank America and Wells Fargo. So anyway, you can go through a lot here, but there's a lot to digest, and there's going to be a lot to digest over the next several months, I think, from this. No question, but I gleaned a lot from that. I think Putin miscalculated the NATO response. I don't think he 
thought we'd be as unified as we are. But that's fine. My sense has contingency plans. But I don't think he particularly cares if he wins or loses whatever a win or loss is. In his mind, he's trying to get through the Gorbachev Soviet Union, the Boris Yeltsin Soviet Union. And he says, those guys were losers. I'm trying to bring back the Russian Empire. And whether I succeed or not almost doesn't matter because a thousand years from now, history books will be talking about me. With that said, that's part of the reason. The other reason is this in terms of this Ukraine invasion. Ukraine, they're the fourth largest producer of commodities on the freaking planet. And if you control the commodity markets, Dan Nathan, you control the global economy. This is all happening at the worst possible time. If you think about it, prior to the pandemic, we had this trade war, which was already starting to put some pressure on global supply chains. And then you have just the absolute destruction of demand, which caused every manufacturer, every shipping route just to go offline here. And then at a time when we're supposed to be reflating the global economy, and then really, as far as I'm concerned, I did not think we we're going to see a whole heck of a lot of reshoring, if you will. I thought we were going to go back to our globalized ways, if you will. But now, once we get by this situation with Ukraine as it relates to commodities, we might be dealing with a manufacturing issue as it relates to China and Taiwan. I know, Guy, you've been talking about that for a long time. So this could just be a precursor for exasperation of all the bad stuff that happened to global economies during the pandemic. And we spent a lot of time over the last summer debating what transitory meant, the length of that and prices of goods and services and how long they might stick. This might be the thing altogether. Yeah, Danny, and I always thought transitory was sort of a ridiculous word because almost by definition, everything can be considered transitory. And he finally, he being now Fed Chair Jerome Powell, threw in the towel with that one a few months ago. But I'll say this in terms of the commodity markets. Obviously, COVID in a lot of ways led to this. Why? A lot of companies just shut down, stopped CapEx, the whole thing. And you just don't start that back up on a dime. And it has far-reaching ramifications. So you can say it's a supply thing in terms of oil. I think it's a supply and demand thing. And that doesn't rectify itself overnight. And people are going to wince when I say it again, but it's true. The only cure for higher prices in crude oil and in commodities as higher prices. And I don't think we're there yet. Yeah, you might get a pullback here, but I want to say this has been set in motion a long time ago, Danny, and I don't think it stops anytime soon. Let's be clear. These were issues prior to crisis in Ukraine that were already existing. We were obviously already looking at high inflation. We were just getting out a little bit of some of the supply chain issues, which there's certain products which are now going to go back into problem zone. So Matt Levine wrote a great op-ed today. His title of it is, Uninvestable Markets Are Hard to Trade. And that's exactly what this is right now. And so I was away last week, obviously. A lot was going on. Probably better that I was, because I think to even try to trade the markets would have been hard to even talk about it when it's really not important on the global stage. But everything just got a little bit worse. We talked about months ago, geopolitical risk was the one thing we thought was massively underpriced, was being ignored. I don't care if it's Russia. I don't care if it's China, Taiwan, what it was going to be. We all agreed that that was the case. That's now going to be with us for a sustained basis, because even if we get through this a little bit, we know stuff's percolating in China. We know all these issues. So you guys just mentioned wheat, commodities, what they have coming out of Ukraine. That's a big deal. And now Powell, who was already in trouble in terms of behind the curve, is now potentially way behind the curve. So as I watch the markets and I watch rates and I try to look at those that tell me what's going on in the world... I'm not feeling any better about the stock market. The market is still 9 10% off of its highs. We have not acknowledged this in any way, in my opinion, what it means to inflation and so forth. The market for about a day, like the fact that Jerome Powell telegraphed that they were only going 25 basis points, a CME Fed tracker was not pricing a high likelihood of that in March anyway. At some point before the invasion, it was. And I know there was calls for that. Let's get this harder, quicker, and really tamp down inflation. But the problem we have right now with this situation is that it really does place the Fed in a huge box. If we start to see, and Danny, you were saying this earlier to me, that if the jobs number for February is weaker than expected, and if you're a stock market bull because you're hoping that the Fed gets more dovish, you want a weaker number. I don't think that actually does what you think it's going to do because at the end of the day, there is no suppressing some of these geopolitical impulses as it relates to higher prices of commodities. Yeah. So watching Powell testify in front of the House and the Senate the last few days, when Richard Shelby calls you out, you know you have a big problem. But the quote from Powell was, hindsight says we should have moved earlier but there's no precedence for this. That's correct. There's no precedence for the amount of money that you've been pumping in for way too long. 
you got an ISM number that came out today that shows that things are slowing. ISM service number was slowing. And Dan, I'll counter your point. I see both sides of a bad jobs number. So I think the expectations, I think, are around 380,000, if that's correctly what people might be looking for. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think they want to see 100, but they definitely don't want to see 4, 450. And here's why. We have been saying all along that the Fed will probably three hikes maximum. I think that's what I think we all think it's going to be. And not even because they have inflation under control or that inflation is going to abate. It's because the impact it's going to have on how much I believe it's going to slow things down. And now one of the big challenges that just came out is because the dollar versus the euro. This war is on European soil, and they really are going to stop any rate hikes or undo some of the things that they were doing and add more liquidity. That puts huge pressure and an upward move on the dollar here, and that's obviously never a great thing on a sustained basis. So they're facing a lot of new challenges here, and the only thing to come out of that that you could say was even dovish on it was Powell saying, yes, we acknowledge what's going on in Ukraine. Yes, we're taking into account other things. And I believe people wanted to see signs of slowing rather sooner rather than later, so that he can be more dovish, at least send that signal to the market. That's what I believe. It's interesting. I think a lot of market participants look to what's going on, Russia, Ukraine, and say, hey, this gives the Fed air cover to stop, to go back to as accommodative, or maybe not as accommodative as they were, but nowhere near as hawkish as they've become. And I think you're whistling past the wrong graveyard on this one. If things in Russia, Ukraine abate, that will be inflationary. And what's going on now there? is inflationary. And that problem is not going to go away anytime soon. So if you think somehow, Dan, I don't think you do, but magically the Fed has our back again, you're sorely mistaken. Let's bring it to the stock market here because I'm looking at the S&P 500 down about 7.5% on the year. The NASDAQ is down about 13.5%. So that underperformance there, we know we've been talking about it for, it seems like a year now, just the devastation and high valuation, marginally profitable or unprofitable stocks, whether they be all these new issues, whether they came public through SPAC or through IPO. I mean, it's just been a bloodbath for months and months and months now, but something really funky is going on here. And I've said this a couple of times, Guy and I have talked about a little bit. And Danny, I don't know if you have these sort of conspiratorial thoughts here, but Apple is down 6% on the year. Apple's the largest market cap company in the world. Microsoft is the second largest market cap company in the world. It's down about 10% or so. And really, these stocks massively outperformed over the last nine months prior to that recent high in the S&P 500. You also have Google that's down less than 10%. I think the Fed, who's no longer buying treasuries and MBS, I think they're buying these stocks. I think they're trying to keep the S&P 500 in some sort of range where it doesn't feel like consumers are looking at the stock market crashing and they're keeping the broad markets elevated a little bit. And I know that sounds a bit crazy, but man, oh man, and guy, you say this all the time. If we're on the precipice of a recession right now, the one thing that could really push it is if the stock market went down 20, 25%, because then you know what comes after that? Housing comes after that. And then you know what comes after that? All this other crap, this art and all this other stuff that people been buying hand over fist for the last two years. What causes a recession? Does a bear market cause a recession or does a recession cause a sell-off or a bear market? I think I know the answer to that. I'll let you folks decide. But I'll say this. You mentioned Apple. On February 24th, when things were their shittiest in the market, Apple traded down to $152. The 200-day moving average on that day was $151.60. Since that day, that stock has rallied over 10%. On a tape that's been, yeah, okay, not great. Think about that for a second. That's in a week, right? That's in a week. So if you think Dan is out of his mind, go back and look at exactly what happened on the 24th. But I would make one other point here. If valuations and concern about stock market investors here, and we know it is in a lot of, again, very high valuation places, don't tell me that Apple with expected earnings growth of 8% this year, which is basically in line with what the S&P 500's expected earnings growth is. The S&P is basically trading at its five-year average about 18 and a half times, and Apple's trading at 27 times. That absolutely makes no sense. And we've always said it's going to be the last battle fought, but it's the MAGA complex. It's Microsoft, it's Apple, it's Google, and it's Amazon. And it really feels like if you're looking for signs of capitulation, it's when all of those guys are down about 10% from current level. What you just said, Dan, is factually correct. So when you talk about those numbers, those numbers or facts, as opposed to some of the things you hear about Apple, what a great company it is, and we all have this ecosystem, and all those great things about how Apple never goes down, and you have to own it, not trade it, and those types of things. What I will say in response to that is a number of things. First of all, as we've said a number of times, go back and look at your Google machines, check out a chart. 
Over the last four or five years, Apple has had a number of, if not close to five, 25 to 40% peak to trough declines. Again, do I know if we're in the midst of one now? I don't. I think we might be. In terms of valuation, when Apple was a growth stock seven or eight years ago, it was trading at 12 times forward numbers, which is a trough valuation, which is a value stock valuation. Now that it is a value stock, by all definitions, it is now trading at a growth multiple 27 times for a company to Dan's point that's going to have 8% or so earnings growth makes no sense. I don't care what stock it is. It doesn't make any sense. Now, I will say this. You make a great point. Apple's in probably 350 or something ETF, something crazy like that. So this passive money flow obviously helps Apple. And Danny, you can wax poetic about this. I'm telling you now, when passive becomes active, they will take no prisoners. And the last one to fall will probably be Apple Computer. Like what I did there, Apple Computer. I love conspiracy theories. You love calamity and you love conspiracy. I love calamity. I love conspiracy theories. I don't think the Fed's buying, and I'll tell you what I believe this is. First of all, you have quant machines or passive machines that automatically when yields start dropping, since that's been the signal by go and buy stocks, right? So we've seen the 10-year yield here retreat. I don't even know. It was 205. Would it go under 160 intraday or something in the last couple of days? So you had a buy signal there. Two, money is pouring back into the United States from around the world. And then I want you to think about something. The inflation level is so rampant here right now that even if you told me the market was flat, if it was going to end up flat for 2022, it might be down 16% on an absolute basis. I'm saying relative to what inflation may end up being. So I think it's a bunch of those factors that are all in there. So I just think, again, this whole idea of looking minute to minute and day to day, and we have to, and people do because it's their livelihood and they're forced to trade and do things, but take a deep breath and a step back. And this is why if you are a patient, prudent investor and you're disciplined, use these moves like this to sell what you wanted to move up and buy what you want to when it moves down. And that's what I think we are. And I think it creates huge opportunity. But Matt Levine said it best. It's not an investable market right now, but you got to watch it. These Federal Reserve individuals have dual mandates. Dual means two, I think, last I looked. And you know what my view is. Their dual mandate all along is to make sure both the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ go higher. And to that end, they've succeeded extraordinarily well. In essence, one of their dual mandates is stable prices. Stable meaning prices that don't move around a lot. Lack of volatility, I guess, by definition, is stable. Danny Moses, would you agree with that? Yes or no, please? Yes. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. So you just talked about a bond market. The 10-year yield has gone from 145 to 205. To your point, recently traded down 1.7% back up to 187 over the course, I would say, a couple weeks. Does that sound stable to you, Danny Moses? Not at all. And what happens when the Fed, I don't think they will, starts letting their balance sheet run off. I think that's, again, we can talk about that at a whole other show. But I just think it was a flight to safety right now, and people take that as a signal of something else or something that's a green light to buy stocks. And to Dan's point, I think that's the wrong signal. Danny, I think you actually nailed it. You just mentioned the dollar. The Dixie is trading at 97.5. It's trading at levels that it hasn't been at since year and a half, almost two or so. And what was going on then? We did see a flight to quality as it relates to risk assets. We also saw yields drop dramatically. That meant people came in to buy treasuries. Then on a relative basis, a lot of those big NASDAQ names did trade far better than a lot of very high valuation names. So I do agree with that. I think that's going on. During the pandemic, we were floored by the crap that we heard that the Fed, what they were buying. They were buying ETFs, bond ETFs, and this and that, whatever. One of the things that I find the S&P only down what it is, 7 7.5% or something really troubling is because on a day like today, where the S&P 500, so Thursday, we're like an hour before the close right now, it's down 25 basis points. The NASDAQ, though, is down 1.3%. And the bloodletting that continues in these stocks that have been absolutely bludgeoned already. So today, Snowflake, and Guy, you got to give me something here, down 17.5%. This is a company that was trading with a $130 billion market cap. It's down about 45% from its highs just a few months ago when public last year had an insane price to sales multiple of about 40, 45 or something like that. Right now, about 28. MongoDB, again, down 13%. This is another stock north of a 20 multiple to sales. In this market, we were just saying that we thought Apple's PE at 27 was expensive to the S&P at 18. 
and I'm looking at Zoom. You didn't think the stock could go any lower? It's down nearly 6% today. And the list goes on and on for all these SaaS names. CrowdStrike's down 5%. Datadog is down nearly 10%. DocuSound's down. These stocks are all down 60% already. Well, let's just hammer home and Snowflake. And Dan just mentioned, at its zenith, that would be the highest point, Danny Moses. This stock was a $405 stock. And I think at that time, the market cap of said snowflake was roughly $145, $150 billion with a B. Now you say, all right, well, there are a lot of companies that size. Yes, there are. They're due to book $2 billion in revenue. So at its peak, Zenith, once again, Apex, Danny Moses, it was trading about 75 times revenue. Even with this sell-off, when the stock has effectively been cut in half, it's still trading north of 30 times revenues. It's obscene what's going on. So people say, wait a second, the stock sold off a lot, must be cheap. Uh, Wrong, R-O-N-G, wrong. It was expensive then. And quite frankly, it's still expensive now and it can get a whole lot cheaper. How many times do we have to talk about the fact that every earnings report is a beauty pageant? You come out, you want to look as great as you can, you put out the best numbers that you can. People stay away from shorting some stocks that they think will beat. That would be the normal mentality. Like, why would I sell or short something I know when they're having a great quarter? But what we've seen in the last three, four quarters is when a company does report, I don't care what it is, people will reevaluate and underwrite it at that moment. Where is this trading? What is it worth? And we are no longer in this 10, 20, 30 multiple of revenue world, unless you are growing literally 100, 200%. So if you tweak growth at all, you're going to get destroyed. If you maintain growth, you're probably going to sell off here. So again, these are stocks, good for them. I hope they raised money, huge valuations. They were benefiting from money being free rates at zero and liquidity just being pumped in and there no other place to go but into the stock market. That's it. It's pretty simple. If the three of us find ourselves in a beauty pageant, you have to do your own skill. My sense, Danny Moses, your skill would be the Danny Moses voice. Can you just do a Danny Moses voice for us real quick? Which one are you looking for, guy? The welcoming guy on stage? Let me just put a bow on this conversation. So my point is, I just said it's not going to be done. The last battle fought is going to be like an Apple or something like that. But really, these names, they really need to be below 10 times sales. I'm just telling you. So like Snowflake and some of these things are going to round trip all of that. And even a 10 times sales for some of those large market cap companies like that is ludicrous. So my only point with the S&P down 7, 7.5%, it is not done, people. And I'm not telling you we're going to crash or anything like that. There is no way you can look around this stock market and see the sort of devastation that we are seeing among hundreds of stocks and the handful of them are going to hold it up. And the other one, and I keep harping on this one, keep an eye on JP Morgan. I'm not telling you there's anything wrong there. This stock did not put up a great Q4. People were unhappy with those expenses. But let me tell you something. We've already seen a few banks come out and try to signify what they think their exposure is to Russian sanctions. We have no idea how this goes. And Danny, you know this because you watched it during the financial crisis. How many of these banks had to rejigger their exposures to things? And I'm not telling you this is going to snowball, but it just seems too early right now to say we are close to a bottom. Before Danny gets into his rip off the tape segment, which we call rot, my special skill set, in case you cared, would be me draining threes like Steph Curry. Dan's special skill set would be rolling his eyes at me as I go down this rabbit hole. I think I would emerge victorious, but that's just me. Quickly, in terms of J.P. Morgan, before we get to the rot, Danny, valuations now are certainly mattering in banks. And I think people looked at J.P. Morgan and said, wait a second, why is this stock trading? Why is this bank trading two and a half times tangible book? Listen, J.P. Morgan's a great bank. Is it as great a bank as it was post-financial crisis? I don't think so. So I think that's coming in the line as well. And a lot of people will look at Citibank. And by the way, a name that I've tried to get my arms around for a while, now trading at about 72% of tangible book. Why is that? Because out of all the major banks, they probably have the most European exposure. I was about to say I was going to change my voice for the beauty pageant to coming soon to theaters in a world where everything is a sell. Come the banks. And let me tell you, I'm going to go into my rot. Can I go into the rot now? Absolutely. All right. So Dan called me up. He says, come on Fast Money. They want to talk about the banks, about what's happening. So I started thinking, all right, I'll make some comments. I'll call Porter and Vinny first and ask them what they think before I make a fool out of myself on television. I was driving over literally, and I realized I'm like, you know what? I miss Paul Volcker for many reasons. And then I started thinking about, wait a minute, I got to go back and look at that Volcker rule so that I can look back and see what it permits and what it doesn't. And I knew it got changed, but I kind of forgot that it got changed. So Paul Volcker was the inflation fighter of the late 70s. We could use him today, obviously, and his name was invoked on the Senate floor today. So that's one. But two, 
He died in December 2019. Not three weeks later, there was introduction of bills to pull back the Volcker Rule, just so people out there know what that is. Volcker Rule was part of the Dodd-Frank Rule to put restrictions on the banks to make them safer. And the Volcker Rule basically said you can't prop trade anymore or to a degree. So that was a general rule because you use taxpayer money to take all this risk. You lost it. You shouldn't be able to do that. So I looked. They changed the rules that went into effect in July 2020 that basically, in a nutshell, allowed these banks to start investing in credit funds, venture capital funds. So they changed the definition of what is a covered fund of what they could invest in, eliminated restrictions for directly investing their own money in portfolio companies in parallel with investment by these funds, permits exemptions, on and on and on. And all I can think of, COVID hits. All this money gets pushed into the system. At the same time, they repeal various parts of this vocal rule. So you're asking me, Guy, I want to answer your question that you asked about J.P. Morgan and Citi and some of the, are there things that they probably have or pockets that are exposed? Sure. Could they be bigger than they would have been before July 2020? Are they in deeper places? Maybe. Do they have clients that they've seeded or they've invested in credit funds that will be exposed? For sure. Is it a massive contagion that's going to take down the U.S. financial system? No. I don't believe that's the case. So I want to ride on the fact that I don't think this is talked about at all. I haven't heard one person talk about it, and I brought it up. So that's what I wanted to mention today, and I think that people start to look back. And I said this all along. The biggest risk that Wall Street has, one of the risks, is the next time they do this, when I say do this, they misbehave. They are asking for it. And depending on what Washington looks like at the time, they run the real risk of having things pulled from them again and under these type of restrictions. And so hopefully it doesn't happen, and that's far from happening, but I think it's something we need to pay attention to. The irony of not being allowed to prop trade, and it's not lost on me, nor should it be lost on to you, the audience, is the fact that the biggest prop trade in the history of mankind finds itself on the balance sheet of our Federal Reserve, Danny Moses. Do you find the irony in that as well? Ah, that's good. That's great irony. The real irony is that when that biggest prop trade, which was the housing trade, was on dozens of banks all over the country's balance sheets, the U.S. taxpayer had to flip the bill for that one, too. They did foot the bill for that, and they were somewhat complicit in that as well. And that's probably a Dan and I rotting against each other or some sort of street fight. But what I'll say is a lot of people went down a path that they should have known they shouldn't have been going down. Why? Because everything, everybody was doing yeah. it. Yeah, but guy, you can say the same thing for that asshole paying 50 times sales for yeah. Snowflake back in November. That's exactly right. Because investors lost their fucking minds. That's just a fact. Wow. Woo! Danny Moses, by the way. Yes, sir. You know, it's funny. I never heard of John Stewart until like early 2000s or something. And somebody saw him. He was at the New York City Public Library and somebody fawned over him. And I'm like, first of all, he's half my fucking size since we're allowed to curse here. That's neither here nor there. But Danny, you found yourself on this new show that he's doing in this virtual web world. Is that correct? So he has a show called The Problem on Apple TV. And he had a bunch of episodes last year and he picks a topic. Could be the problem with healthcare. This was the problem with the stock market. And so this was taped back in December. And so it really wasn't about what is the stock market doing? Where's, where's the S&P going to go? It was really about the underbelly world. And he really spoke about Citadel, which you can see in the episode, and market makers and why it's unfair for retail and all that stuff. And I was probably put up there, one of the four panelists. They thought they would not come at me, but I was the Wall Street guy. So I tried to be as helpful as I could and as constructive as I could. But my takeaways were the following. Nobody asks about these market structure issues when they're making money. So I hope the retail investor makes as much money as they can, but they don't seem to bother them when the market makers have the same impact on a stock going up as it does when the stock goes down. So when it's just direction one way, that's the first thing. The second one is really exposed Robinhood for what it really is, which is just a platform that only existed because of this payment forward flow. So I think it was good to highlight that, but that was kind of known out there. And the last thing is Ginsler. He sat down with him and I think he took him apart. And I really think he exposed him. And you know how I feel? I rotted on him a couple of weeks ago about not doing anything in this category, putting it at the top of his priority list, and then doing nothing about payment for order flow and market structure. So I tried to fight for the Wall Street crowd, really, I guess the short sellers per se. But I also tried to give the retail traders something to say, we're on their side too. And listen, fundamentals should matter the most. And so at the end of the day, as we say in poker, guy, cards speak. And I think that covers the snowflake. That covers all the things we're talking about. And over time, I think that's how people need to view this market. And you can bluff all you want, but at a certain point, you have to turn over said cards and either you're holding pocket aces, as they say, or as Carter Braxton Worth would say, you're holding pocket twos, which is probably not the particular good hand. Even worse hand, by the way, as you know, Danny Moses, is 2-7 off suit, but that's probably for another show. Now, a lot of folks will be saying to themselves, how can you three assholes 
not be talking about crude at greater length, given what we've seen over the past week. Relax, people, because when we come back, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to have the great Halima Croft join us, and she will wax poetic all things energy. Stick around. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. Halima Croft is a managing director and global head of commodity strategy and global research at RBC Capital Markets. She specializes in geopolitics and energy, leading a team of commodity strategists that cover energy, metals, and cross-commodity investor activity. Halima is a member of the National Petroleum Council, a select group of individuals who advise, inform, and make recommendations to the Secretary of Energy with respect to any matter relating to oil and natural gas. Halima is also a CNBC contributor, a member of the channel's exclusive family of experts, is on the board of directors for the Atlantic Council, is a member of the Trilateral Commission, and is a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations. So the folks can't see it, but my name for this podcast on this Riverside application that we use, Dan Nathan, is Halima is the energy market. And we are thrilled to have with us Halima Croft, because I don't say that. I mean, that is absolute truth. When we need to figure out what the hell's going on in the energy market, CNBC turns to you. And right now, Dan Nathan and myself are turning to you. How are you, Halima? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? We're doing great. And listen, I think people are always fascinated sort of the backstory. And you have a really interesting one. You look at your Twitter account, by the way, and you are a supporter of the Icelandic national soccer team, which I didn't even know they had one, silly me, and mother of three little Vikings. But talk to us about that and then how energy's become your bag. I mean, that is your world. So my husband is Icelandic. And so for domestic relations, I have to always publicly endorse the Icelandic national soccer team. There was a bit of an issue about my loyalty at one point at the OPEC meeting because the secretary general of OPEC is Nigerian. I actually started my career at the CIA covering Nigeria. So I used to always root for Nigeria. And Nigeria was playing Iceland in the World Cup that day at this OPEC meeting. And so I had to amend my little Twitter bio to make it clear that I was actually supporting the Icelandic national soccer team. So that's how that ended up on my Twitter account. My husband and children were in Russia for that World Cup match. And so that is why that is clearly stated when you go to my Twitter account, my soccer loyalties. My spidey sense get heightened when I hear CIA. And you said you worked for the CIA. How does that happen? So I was at Princeton. I was doing a PhD. And there was a professor that I liked a lot. I could even say his name. I don't think you'll mind. Fred Hitz at the Woodrow Wilson School. And he had very senior roles at the CIA. He'd been head of European operations for the CIA. He'd been inspector general of the CIA. He'd actually been an assistant secretary of defense. And he asked me if I would be interested in going down to Virginia for an interview. And so I went down to Virginia for an interview. And I found the CIA is a fascinating place. And I was really, really taken with the idea of actually being an analyst at the CIA And the day I entered the door at the CIA was December 1, 2001, so really right after 9-11. And it was a very, very interesting time to be there, obviously. But it was also very important for the energy markets because there was a view of the White House at the time. And Vice President Cheney was really leading a lot of the energy negotiations or the energy policy for that White House. 
And there was a view that the United States energy security was through diversity of supply, that we didn't want to be so dependent on one region for oil, there'd be concentration risk. There was concern about what the proceeds of oil sales was funding. And so there was this view that one of the key elements of U.S. national security would be to have security of oil production globally. And so I started my career covering Nigeria, as I mentioned in the whole question about my soccer loyalties. And there was a view that we were looking to countries like Nigeria to grow their production. Nigeria was transforming from being a country that was under military rule to being a nascent democracy. We were excited about being able to get barrels from places like Nigeria, like the stands, again, not being so dependent on one region. And so that was really where I started my career. It was really interesting because we really saw how things changed because energy security went quickly from being about, I'd like to source more oil from Nigeria or from Kazakhstan to being about, hey, we have this resource in the United States. We didn't know that it would be possible to become such an abundant producer because there was this view when I joined the CIA that U.S. production was in decline. And so I do think the American energy revolution was very, very transformational for U.S. foreign policy. But we're now seeing the limits of that as we talk about what's happening with Russia right now, because I feel like I'm back to being where I started my career, watching the United States essentially say, can we get more barrels from the Middle East? We have a major geopolitical crisis involving an oil producer. Do we have enough barrels out there? I mean, that was the kind of mode that we were in after 9-11. What if we had a major supply disruption? Is there enough oil out there? We went into the Iraq war and those are the questions. Do we have enough oil? When a country like Venezuela has an oil strike, Nigeria has problems with their production. Are we essentially running out of oil? Then we had the American energy revolution and we thought we will never have to be worried about running out of oil. And now we're seeing oil prices once again at triple digit levels. And there's questions about where is the supply going to come from? It's truly fascinating when you bookend this last 20 years, we had a massive shift as far as global foreign policy as we think about where terror and the war on terror originated and how it originated. And here we are now, 20 years later, some of our closest allies in Europe are feeling some of the same pinch here. China, through their Belt and Road Initiative, they've made tons of inroads in Africa and a lot of resource-rich places. What have we learned? It seems like a major failure of our own foreign policy and that of our allies. I do think that fundamental issues about over-reliance on single suppliers or single regions, we're seeing that really play out now in the case of Europe. There had been this big push to try to convince European countries to reduce their dependence on Russian oil and gas, really natural gas, if you want to look at the situation in a country like Germany. And now there's a real sense of if we do see material disruptions in Russian energy exports, and we can talk more broadly about commodities because this Russia story is so beyond oil and gas. I think one of the biggest fallacies that keeps getting repeated is saying Russia is just a gas station. No, Russia is the Walmart of commodities. They are the world's largest palladium producer. They are a significant producer of aluminum, of nickel, they are one of the world's largest agricultural producers. Ukraine and Russia account for more than a quarter of global wheat exports. This is a really big commodity story. But Europe is now having to face up to the fact that their security is going to have to come through diversity of supply and different types of energy as well. Questions about nuclear being back on the table in Germany now, I think is really, really fascinating. But it also just shows, once again, how interconnected we really are, that even if Russia's energy exports primarily go to Europe, look where WTI prices are right now. I don't know if there's mythology around this, and this is not a political show, it's not meant to be, but the prior administration is now taking credit for a four-year period when we were energy independent. I'm certain there's some nuance in there because I don't think that is, in fact, the truth. Lots happened over the last five or six years. Can you speak to exactly that? Were we ever energy independent? And to a certain extent, 
COVID really took the wind out of a lot of things, not least of which was CapEx for a lot of these companies, which has led to where we are now. Can you speak to all of that? Well, actually, I think you're showing a lot of nuance in the type of questions you're asking, because you could say that the shale revolution, if you look when shale really, really took off, it was actually under the Obama administration. And it's not that you can say the Obama administration necessarily created the big enabling environment, but it was really during that period that shale really grew. And you could say that Obama, though, looked at shale production and said, this is allowing me to potentially exit the Middle East and I can pivot to Asia. And then, of course, ISIS really went on a tear and we got dragged back into the Middle East. But I think for Obama, he did see shale is helpful in achieving this pivot to Asia and essentially saying, we don't have to become as involved in the Middle East as we did before. I think President Trump put that on steroids. American energy dominance was a key organizing principle of the Trump foreign policy. I heard early on, I'm on the National Petroleum Council, and these things were on the record. And I will never forget the first meeting of the National Petroleum Council when you had Rick Perry as energy secretary. And he looked at the room of oil and gas producers and basically said, we love you. And we're not going to put the climate change fight front and center. We're putting American energy dominance front and center. And I remember it was him and then the Secretary of Interior at the time said, this abundant resource can allow us to punish our foreign policy adversaries. And they talked about Iran, Venezuela, and we can shield U.S. consumers from the price impact of this type of policy. And it also, they believe, meant that we didn't have to become engaged in the Middle East if we didn't want to be. And I think one of the sort of clear illustrations of a shift in U.S. policy is look what happened on September 14th, 2019. We had more than half of Saudi Arabia's oil production temporarily taken offline by cruise missile and drone attacks that have been linked to Iran. And the United States said, we don't actually need to enforce the Carter Doctrine. And that was this doctrine that essentially said it was a core foreign policy priority of the United States to protect Persian Gulf oil and gas facilities. It was Donald Trump who said right after that, you know what, this is oil going to Asia. This does not require an American military response. But I think what people overlooked about shale is that it was a situation of mutual dependence with OPEC. Remember what happened when prices collapsed in 2015? Shale was really on the verge of collapsing. And what really gave shale that lifeline was the decision of OPEC and Russia to put a floor under prices by doing that big production cut. And so you always had this dependency between OPEC and U.S. producers going forward. And think about what happened when prices collapsed in 2020 with the price war. It was when U.S. producers called the White House and said, we can't survive in this price environment, President Trump. You need to get the Russians and Saudis back to the table. That showed this interdependence. I'm so happy you brought that up because I actually said this on Fast Money a number of times. Again, and politics bore me. That's not particularly interesting. But during that administration, when prices were too high, he'd come out and say, prices are too high. We need OPEC to do something. And then when prices got too low and threatened the very industry that they were championing, prices are too low. We need to do something. It's crazy that they were playing commodity games during the four years of that administration, and nobody called them out on it. It makes me nuts. But with that said, that's where we are today. And as we sit here, as you mentioned, prices are significantly higher for a myriad of different reasons. I mentioned the lack of CapEx during the COVID years. That has absolutely a lot to do with what we're seeing right now, because it is a supply-demand problem what we're dealing with. You're absolutely right. We have a situation where Companies across the world cut their capex during the COVID downturn. Let's just look at Russia. Russian companies cut their capex. And so there have been questions all year about has Russia been deliberately withholding supplies into Europe or did Gazprom cut their capex so much that they were constrained in terms of how much additional gas they could even provide to European consumers. But this has been a big reason why, for example, OPEC has been struggling to lift production. They have this agreement in place since July 
to gradually add barrels back to the market. They're doing a 400,000 barrel a day production increase every month. And you see consistently that they can't reach these numbers because countries are capped out. Nigeria is capped out. Angola is capped out. And the demand that investors have put on shale companies for capital discipline means that, yes, U.S. production is going to grow. But if we expect demand to recover by 4 million barrels a day this year with the COVID reopening, there's real question marks of, is there enough supply out there? So that's why this Russia situation comes at the most perilous moment, I would say, for the oil markets, because we were already talking about a very, very tight oil market. Now we have a situation where one of the world's largest oil producers and gas producers, and again, a whole host of commodities, is facing a situation where they are having the most onerous sanctions ever placed on them. So for example, their central bank, it's the first time a G20 central bank has been subject to sanctions. Their foreign exchange reserves are frozen. Their banks are being sanctioned. And I would say most importantly, oil companies, trading houses, shipping companies, banks are self-sanctioning. They're essentially saying, even if we formally haven't been told yet by the White House, we have to drop ties with Russia, we see the direction of travel. We think those sanctions are coming. And we do not want to be publicly accused of fueling Putin's war machine. We're out. So company after company is hitting the exit button. And that means that Russia is facing a buyer strike. It's not that their production has collapsed, but nobody wants their exports. And that further tightens this market. Putting your CIA hat on again for a second, Putin, as a former KGB agent, he obviously considered a lot of this in his calculus. I'm sure he was playing a little chess here, looking a few moves out. So I'm just curious, do you think in your analyst mind right now, did he think about it correctly? And is it playing out in a way that he still thinks he can win this economic battle, if you will? Vladimir Putin once famously said there's no such thing as an ex-KGB officer. So I think that has always been his worldview. And he's always had the view that the biggest tragedy that has befallen his country was the collapse of the Soviet empire. And so he's always been focused on limiting NATO expansionism. And he believes that we lied about the terms of the post-89 fall in the Berlin Wall settlement in Europe, that we had said that we would not expand NATO eastward, and we did. I think that he probably believed that there would not be such a unified Western response to an invasion of Ukraine. I think he probably thought that Germany was too dependent on Russia for commodities. If you think about it, they get 32% of their natural gas from Russia. 34% of their oil, 50% of their hard coal from Russia. I think he thought the politics of dependency would mean a more fractured Western response. And I think that's probably surprised him. There are also issues about, was the Russian military fully prepared for this type of military offensive? There are reports that some of the troops thought they were on a training exercise and were not prepared for a drawn-out battle. I think Putin is probably surprised by the fact that Countries in Europe have gotten over their reticence about supplying Ukraine with offensive weaponry, again, most notably Germany. But I don't think that means that Putin is going to say in the next 24, 48 hours that he's going to sue for peace. Even if this has gotten more financially painful, even if his oligarchs are expressing concerns about the cost and losing their villas in Tuscany and their houses in London and their football clubs. I do think that Putin, this is his war. And there are reports that he's more isolated than in previous periods. And we could be in for a much longer and deeper crisis than I think many have thought was possible. At some point, though, investors and economies and corporates and everyone, they're going to get a little more comfortable with those supply-demand dynamics, find their ways around it, sourcing from other places. And I guess my point is, where would you look to see Max Payne? Let's assume that the situation doesn't get much worse than here, maybe a bit more protracted. But if I look at the 30-year chart of crude oil, you go back to the early 90s and you remember Iraq's invasion of Kuwait, you saw oil double, but then it came 
came in really hard and spent the better part of the 90s trading in the 20s. And then in the 2000s, we saw a buildup and there's a whole host of things. And I know that's the period in which you were at the CIA and you probably have a lot to say about it, but it crescendoed into just the absolute expansion by the Chinese. And that was a big part of it. But then it crashed during the global recession. You get where I'm going here. As soon as the end of QE, as soon as the taper was done and rates started going higher here in the US, the dollar started going higher. What happened? Crude oil just crashed. It lost 60 some percent from its highs, I think, in 2013 or 14 to its lows in 2016 or so. How is this going to be different? A lot of what you just said speaks to me as like, this is one of the most rigged markets on the planet. And therefore, I just don't see it staying at sustained prices above 100 for WTI or Brent. And again, I know nothing about this. This is me putting my trader hat on. I mean, at a certain point, the cure for high prices is high prices. But I would say if you go back to 2008, we got demand destruction when oil was basically close to 150 bucks. So I think that there is potentially room to run. And I think, again, what makes this particularly challenging is simply the fundamental backdrop. I mean, let's just do the math. If you expect demand to grow by 4 million barrels a day plus this year, and let's look around the complex. Let's do a tour of the world and see where the oil is. Let's say U.S. grows by 750,000 to a million. Okay, we're still chasing 3 million barrels of growth. If you want to look at where are the barrels right now, I do think this goes to Guy's point about are we dealing with a legacy issue now of investment being pulled out of the sector? And I think there are four countries that have spare capacity right now. I'm not putting Russia in that group because even if Russia has spare capacity, they can't even use their current capacity right now. So you're talking about Saudi Arabia, maybe they've got 1.5 million. I'm going to be generous on that one. Then you have Kuwait, you've got UAE, you've got Iraq. Let's round them up to 2 million. So let's put the math together. That's why I think there was a tight fundamental backdrop to this market. And again, We may have room to run in terms of prices until we hit that demand destruction point. I think a lot of people were too quick to say during COVID, you know what, it's peak demand, we've got this energy transition, the pace of the recovery and the slowness in the supply response is what got us here. Russia is just almost a horrific overlay on this situation. Again, the scale of Russia should not be understated for commodity markets. And again, if this thing ends tomorrow and Russian troops go back to the barracks and companies say, I'm comfortable with this type of risk, then you can say, okay, maybe we get something of an off-ramp and then we just talk about a tighter market. If Putin decides that he is going to wage this war, and he's going to see this through, we could be talking about Russian supply disruptions for a more significant period. So one of the many reasons I didn't work at the CIA is I didn't graduate from Princeton, one, and I can't spell CIA, two. Both of them problematic for that job. But what I will say is this, you know, we talked about this, the situation basically unraveling in Russia, Ukraine, post-Olympics, that's come to fruition. The other thing I've been concerned about is potential for China-Taiwan. I will say this about Russia-Ukraine. I'm with you. I don't think he necessarily cares if he wins or loses. I think he cares that in 100 years from now, people will say at least he tried to bring back the Russian empire, number one. But number two, don't estimate, underestimate this as well. And I think you would agree, if you control the global commodity markets, you control the global economy. And I think that's really what's at work here, because as you mentioned, Ukraine is a commodity-rich nation. Absolutely. I mean, there's a reason why Ukraine was called the breadbasket of Europe. We are so concerned about the inflationary environment right now. And I look at issues like food inflation. Again, if Ukraine and Russia account for 29% of global wheat exports, they are significant corn exporter. I do think it takes time to find replacement products for a whole host of these commodities. And so I just don't think it's going to be as easy an off-ramp necessarily as in previous periods. This Russia-Ukraine crisis could be a generational security crisis. I think that is what's important, is that this is not Chechnya, this is not Crimea, 
This is not Georgia in 2008. This is a much more potentially serious security crisis. And there are ways that this could get worse that may not be people's base case, but they're not black swan. And if they're tail risks, they may actually be fat tails. I do think the risk around if there is Russian action involving a NATO member in the region, for example, one of the Baltic states, Poland or Lithuania, that becomes an internationalized conflict because of NATO Article 5 obligations. Russia has already done very serious cyber attacks on countries like Latvia. Latvia at the time thought that meant NATO Article 5, which is a collective defense agreement with NATO members, an attack on one is an attack on all, should have been activated with those cyber attacks. They weren't at the time. I was on a call with a NATO head, and he basically said, if there's a cyber attack now on one of these countries, that does invoke Article 5. And so there are all ways that this could get worse. And I think the market wanted to ignore the risk of Russia, Ukraine, because they didn't think it was rational, even though the CIA was warning about it from December. And now I think we're all too ready to say there is an easy off ramp because this would just be too catastrophic and it would be too disruptive. And so I'm going to think that this will be solved in a matter of days or weeks. Yeah, I think people should read their history books if they think that's the case, because there are no easy off-ramps. And quite frankly, I don't think Putin is looking for an easy off-ramp at all. And I do think he's dug in. I think we somehow think, as just citizens of the United States, that everything seems to magically work itself out. By the way, huge deal for Germany to announce that they were increase their defense budget. Talk to me about that, because you know what I know. The Germans just don't wake up in the morning and decide to do something. This is extraordinarily well thought out. And they've gone through all the implications that increasing their defense budget for the first time in God knows how long means. This is a major, major achievement of Vladimir Putin. What he has changed in terms of the German political landscape. First of all, we just start with Nord Stream 2 being put on ice. That was a very, very important political project for Vladimir Putin. It's something that Angela Merkel lobbied aggressively for the United States to green light. The fact that that is now off the table You mentioned the defense spending. That is a major, major achievement in terms of getting Germany to basically say, we are going to spend 2% of GDP on defense spending, basically in line with what we've been asking other NATO members to do. And so you may come out of this with a more robust NATO. So in that respect, Vladimir Putin may be getting the exact opposite of what he wanted, which was to fracture NATO, to fracture the Western alliance, and now it actually looks stronger. But to your point, Guy, on China-Taiwan, do I believe that part of the reason why there has been such a tough response on Russia? I mean, again, the sanction of G20 Central Bank is a big deal. A lot of these sanctions are really, really big deals and could only get more painful for Russia. But part of the reason they're doing this, hunting down these oligarchs, going after the assets they may have transferred to family members, is they want to signal to China, you may think that Washington is weak because of the way we exited Afghanistan. That would be a mistake. And I think it's essentially what they're saying to China is, if you think about being adventurous and believing that the time is right now to take Taiwan, we will fight you very strongly. And I think they understand that looking weak with Putin now potentially greenlights China taking Taiwan. So many amazing cross currents here and things you have to take in consideration. People that run for these offices, heavy is the head that wears the crown. They have to deal with these things. I always say this, and I think you would agree with it. Every new Fed chair is tested by the market. And I think every new administration is tested by bad actors out there And that's what's going on. But to get back to the energy market, I think you said it. If you think these things are going to abate overnight, I don't think you're paying attention. And I say this as well. It's a commodity thing. You said it. The cure for higher prices is higher prices. I don't think we're at that point yet. Here's a question for you. Again, not political. I don't care about politics. But I said it at the time when they released reserves from the SPR, huge mistake. And now they're talking about it again. There are no real supply disruptions going on, what people are feeling are price pains. And that was not put into place for me to worry about paying instead of $3 a gallon, $4 a gallon of gasoline. Can you speak to that? I think there's diminishing efficacy if you keep using the SPR. And I think that the 
reasons for using the SPR have certainly evolved. It used to be you use it when there's a disruption to a U.S. refinery. And then during the Arab Spring, you had a coordinated release with the IEA. Last time we had one because there was a disruption in Libya, not a disruption to a U.S. refinery. So we used it then, I would argue, to really help incentivize Saudi Arabia to quickly make good on their pledge to backfill that Libyan disruption. But now we're explicitly targeting price. And so the reasons we use the SPR are evolving, but just look at the market response yesterday. 60 million barrels, coordinated release, and market participants were like, okay, that basically gets me through lunch because we have 100 million barrel a day demand situation. And so I do think that this goes down to the whole issue about what is the potential scale of a Russian loss? And I think that's what the market is now really starting to absorb because it was not clear when those tanks crossed the border, when they started shelling Kiev, that companies would exit as quickly as they are. Look at BP, look at how quickly BP changed their tune on Russia. And now you have today, you have Trafagura basically coming out and saying, they're out. You have shipping companies saying they're out. You have the key banks that finance the commodity business in Russia saying they're out. And there has not even yet been formal sanctions on taking Russian oil, taking Russian gas, doing that trade, and companies are self-sanctioning. And so I do think that's part of the reason why 60 million from the SPR, when you're now having to say, what if I lose a significant portion of Russia's oil exports? That's not going to plug that hole. We haven't even mentioned India, and they seem to be trying to figure out how do they align themselves. And you have to mention them because you just think about the amount of people there, the emerging economy that they've become. They're a huge player in all of this as well, and they have not shown their hand. At least I haven't figured it out yet. No, in fact, you have Prime Minister Modi looking like he wants to basically be friends with both parties. And you look at the countries that have increased their take of Russian barrels. It's been India and China. And so I do think that the Indians and the Chinese will continue to take Russian barrels and they'll continue to take discounted barrels, but frankly, not enough to offset potentially what's happening with this divestiture movement. But they will take more barrels to the moment it becomes clear that the United States is going to hit Russia with secondary sanctions on energy. Dan, if you want to know how does this get worse, gets worse the moment we slap Iran-style sanctions on Russia. Because those secondary sanctions essentially said, any refinery around the world, if you take Iranian barrels, you will be locked out of U.S. capital markets. So India basically had to get out of taking significant Iran barrels. If we do that with Russia, and I think we are one mass casualty event away from the United States basically saying, you know what, we do have to consider energy sanctions. The minute we put energy sanctions on Russia, that's when India basically says, you know what, I may like you, Vladimir Putin, but your oil actually is too toxic for me to touch right now. That's where I was going next. If Kiev is taken and there is a mass casualty event there, you have to assume that that is the next piece to move. President Biden's administration has been saying they don't want to do that. They don't want to have this negative effect on U.S. consumers. But I think it's also important that we have unemployment at, what, 40-year lows or thereabouts, and we're back towards, we've round-tripped the whole move of the pandemic, and we've thrown trillions of dollars, taxpayers' dollars, at keeping corporates and consumers afloat. And it just seems that economic sanctions are great, and they really did bend the will of the Iranian people. But one of the bigger issues that we may have as a country right now is our word is not what it was, let's say, 10 or 20 years ago when you took the oath at the CIA. And that sounds political, but we've ripped up a whole host of international agreements that were meant to guard against a bunch of this sort of stuff. We seem to be in a difficult spot here with this situation with NATO. It seems like the Europeans are doing a better job than we are. Well, I actually think, Dan, that this is why the degree of unity in the response is actually important, because I do think that Vladimir Putin was probably banking on the fact that people were questioning the reliability of the United States. 
They were questioning whether NATO really could act together. And I do think that if there's one thing that has come out of this horrific crisis involving Ukraine, which could be just an untold humanitarian catastrophe in Europe, is that I think that the NATO alliance actually does look stronger. And I do think the United States looks like it's backing words with action. It's a fascinating conversation. I could literally do this for the next hour. We want to be respectful of your time. Next time, we'll bring in the fact that Belarus seems to be playing both sides of the equation. But that's another podcast, Alima Croft. But thank you so much for joining us on the tape. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to be with you today. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.